Hey everybody, this is Atkins. And this is Adam. And we're bringing you the first ever episode of Kyo Cinema, which is going to be produced by the Back Patio Network and will eventually be patron-exclusive content. So all you have yeah. to do, the first three episodes are for free. They're going to be on the Almighty Podcast RSS feed. But then after that, you'll have to go throw a buck at the back patio. And if you do that, you'll get all of the Kyo Cinema that you can handle. And some other things. Adam, what else? Will the, What's behind door number one besides Kyo Cinema? Oh, there's all kinds of fun stuff. Obviously, whenever you do Patreon, there's like all these different tiers and whatnot. So depending on what tier that you choose to be at, you'll get access to other shows that are behind the Patreon. You'll get access to the Poe Show, which is something my wife and I do together. You'll get access to early release for Rocks and Rune Lords. If you're into RPGs and want to find a fun actual play, that's a really good one. And you get access to do things like our fan criticals for Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder. You can submit those and we use them on air. Uh, and then depending on how much we are at per month, we actually have extra incentives. So we are going to start doing like physical rewards and stickers and shirts and all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, so there's a lot going on at the patio and you get extra access to that via the Patreon. There's also like a special extra little section in our Discord just for patrons. So And we are doing Kyo Cinema as a kind of a side project in addition to the Almighty Podcast, which is always going to be free. And Kyo Cinema is Adam and I sitting down watching every single Dragon Ball movie in order of release, including all of the live action ones. And yes, there's more than one. So we're starting at the beginning because that's the appropriate place to start, correct? Yes. So we are beginning absolutely. with Dragon Ball colon Curse of the Blood Rupees, which was debuted December 20th, 1986 in Japan, which was roughly two, almost three years after Dragon Ball the Anime uh, began in Japan. You know, it's interesting about the multiple live action movies. We actually had a member of the BPN, Casey. He was telling me, he was like, man, you guys are going to watch Dragon Ball Evolution, right? And I said, yeah, that and all the other live action movies. And he was like, what? There are other live action movies? So it's not well known out there. We're going to cover them. The live action Dragon Ball movies are like Wayans Brothers. There's always more. <laughs> well, let's say we go ahead and jump right into Curse of the Blood Rubies. Uh, we get started right off the bat with the narrator telling us a little bit about the Dragon Balls, what they are, the fact that there are seven of them and that you can find all of them. They're hidden, scattered throughout the earth. Once you get all seven, you can summon the great Shinron dragon and he will grant you one wish. And then they scatter all over the earth again until they are recovered, put back together and the dragon summoned another time. So we get a quick little intro after that with the very traditional theme song from Dragon Ball. It is one of my favorite theme songs. I think it's it's up there. Uh, and the the intro is kind of strange for a movie, I feel like, but it re literally basically recaps the movie before you even see it because it's a replay of season one, basically. Yeah, so this movie, it takes place during what would have been the Pilaf saga, but it doesn't take place during that saga. It entirely replaces that saga, the first 12 episodes of Dragon Ball are basically smushed down into about 50 minutes runtime in Curse of the Blood Rubies. Uh, and the, the opening here that talks about the Dragon Balls, at least in the dubbed version, is very different from what I'm used to um, as far as like lore surrounding the Dra Dragon Balls goes. It adds in some strange details, like it talks about Shenron living at the Earth's core. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I was like, what? This is not you know, Kami created these things and there's a timeline and it's like supposed to be more magic, but he just goes home to the to core of the earth. That seemed really strange. But what's interesting is I also watched this as God intended. Um, so I watched not only uh, the dub, 
but also the subtitled version. And the subtitled gives the very traditional, doesn't add any weird additional wrong details about how Shinron works. Uh, so that was interesting that the English dub changed things in an odd way to me. That is interesting. I wonder if that is due to like how many times it's been redubbed, if, if maybe they were more true the first time around, or if, if not. Or maybe what they did was they took the script and they ran it through like an, a Japanese to English translator and then back and forth a couple times too many. <laughs> and so like words just got jumbled up and incorrectly translated. Like your guess is as good as mine. So after the intro, we get introduced to this small village. I, I tried to look up its name, but I don't think it has one. We're just going to call it Pansy's Village because Pansy is one of the main characters that we get introduced to. Fair enough. And basically, Pansy's Village is like this in industrialized village i mean it seems like it used to be kind of farmland and whatnot but now they're slowly demolishing old barns and older buildings and they're building up these factories because they are pretty much mining nothing but blood rubies and it is what the king's order has been you must you must basically go out and mine as many blood rubies as you can and uh, so she's upset about it she doesn't want her village being destroyed she throws a rock at a construction worker who looks very like modern compared to the other people in the episode or the show i thought like it seemed like they looked like they might have been wearing older looking clothes even the the not the civilians but the king's army looked like they're dressed in an older style but i thought that the crewman was like just looked like he'd walked down new york or chicago or something you know he's fancy he's a city boy yeah exactly so he's upset uh he stops working on whatever he's working on and uh, the military comes over they're about to arrest pansy they might even kill her we don't know uh, but Pansy's dad comes in. I don't even think he gets a name. He's just Pansy's dad. He comes in and he saves her. He He's able to kind of get the soldiers off of her. And then they decide to head off to the castle. So they're heading back to go see King uh, Gorameth is what he's referred to some places. But Gurumez is what he was dubbed in at least my version of the movie. Yeah. And Gurumez is kind of like this Pilaf stand in. He has similar aesthetics to Pilaf. Um, and he also kind of has a little army that serves under him, which is kind of like a stand-in for the Red Ribbon stuff a little bit, but not quite. It's weird. It's not meant to be one-to-one -one analogous. Um, they're doing something entirely different here. Uh, they're mining for these blood rubies uh, in the Japanese. They're just called rich stones, which just gets right to it, doesn't it? It's just like they're, ri <laughs> they're rich stones, boys. Um, and, That's awesome. Yeah, Bongo is uh, one of the like main villain guys, shows up on the scene puts a beat down on Pansy's dad. He does this move that I sometimes do with students in dodgeball where he like tosses a blood ruby at him to try to get his attention. And then while he's distracted by the blood ruby flying at him, that's when Bongo goes in for the kill and lays, lays the smack down. And you know what I thought was strange is um, Akira Toriyama has a naming convention where he tends to name people after like edibles or, you know, he has like a very strict mm -hmm. naming, whatever the case might be, vegetables in some cases, spices in others. And so like Pansy's, are edible and but but like all all these names gurumez means gourmet right. um, we're, we're going to talk about that in a second but bongo does not fit that at all like pasta is edible pansy edible and then you have bongo so his name totally stands out i had the same note actually like his name is really off the rocker for this movie and akira toriyama's naming convention in general uh, but I don't know. I maybe maybe there's something out there we're missing maybe there's a translation somewhere or something that we just didn't see could be. And I know that the dad had a name. I think his wife said it very briefly in that first scene when he gets leveled, but I didn't catch it. I'm sure it's on the wiki somewhere. It was Pansy's dad. She was like, Pansy's dad, no. Pansy's dad, no. <laughs> <laughs> we cut in uh, to an interior shot of the castle, and in the, in the dub, there's a hilarious 
joke here. Maybe one of the funniest moments in the entire movie because oh, the best moment. Yeah. Gurumez is he's hungry and he's got all this lavish gourmet food sitting in front of him. And he says, do you call this food? He sounds frustrated. And the robot just says, not just me. Everyone calls this food. <laughs> that joke is only in the dub. It does not exist in the original Japanese. At least the subtitles really? didn't say as much. Yeah. What is he getting onto him for then? Or what does he reply back to that? So it's interesting that there's there's an even greater dis- uh, difference between the sub and the dub here. And I think it speaks to why that joke maybe didn't fly. Is that in the dub, Gurumez has this insatiable appetite. Right. Which kind of doesn't make sense of the visuals in this series or in this particular uh, scene because he has all this food, so presumably he could eat and and possibly begin to scratch that. But in the Japanese, it's not that he has an insatiable appetite; it's that he has to eat tastier and tastier things. So he has to keep scaling up fancy, and so that kind of describes why it is that he's unearthing these blood rubies, which have been cursing him in this very specific way, but he needs them to afford the next most fancy food on the face of the planet. And so that's kind of like his motivation kind of, and why, you know, a little bit of a drive for why it is that he keeps unearthing these. It's kind of strange, the difference. I felt like there, like there was a weird correlation in general because we're aware of the fact that because of the curse of the blood rubies, he, is either insatiable or needs to continue eating better and better foods, which I think even if he's insatiable kind of makes sense that like, yes, he could eat all the food, but it's gotten bland at this point. He needs something better. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, why? Like, did he eat the rubies and this caused this to happen? Or was it just the gathering and the greediness of the rubies that caused this? And that's just part of it. Like in my brain, for some reason, I want to go, he totally ate a ruby. He had to have eaten a ruby. Like once he ate one of those things, it was just kaput. It was done. Like he, he had to eat better and better or he was just insatiable. But I feel like that doesn't make sense either. Yeah, I think that there's a little bit of moralizing around it where greed literally corrupted him. And just turned him into this monster. Yeah, Yeah, because there is no direct explanation besides it's the rubies. The rubies did it. That's all that we really get. Right, but like there are plenty of other people that want the rubies. Like Pasta throughout the movie is talking about how she's in it just for the rubies, and she's not a horrible beast. Not so, yet. Not yet. That's fair. Maybe it's because she hasn't gotten her hands on any. I don't know. Could be. Uh, Pasta, who is this female uh, warrior that basically seems one to one, like with Bongo. I don't know. I felt like they were on the same level. I agree. So she comes in and she's explaining that they actually have some competition uh, whenever it comes to what the king wants. And we find out that the king wants the dragon balls and he wants the dragon balls because he's got to wish his hunger away. Or I guess in maybe the subbed version, he needs to wish that he can just eat normal food. No, it's so strange because they make it sound like he just wants to wish for the tastiest thing in the world, which even if he managed to get that, Wouldn't that doesn't mean <laughs> he would still need to get the next tastiest thing. So right. it's like, that's a terrible wish. You're basically asking, you're wasting a wish and you're still going to starve to death. <laughs> he needs a, he needs a never ending gobstopper. That's right. It right. Of it, inc- it always gets tastier somehow. <laughs> <laughs> well, pasta explains that they've actually got competition with some fortune hunters is what she calls them in the dubbed version. And uh, he, the king is just like, all right, well, go find them. Like, go get the rest of the Dragon Balls. I don't really care. Like, go do this, and I'll give you some blood rubies. And he says, I'll give you all the blood rubies that you can carry. Uh, so they basically are going to go and try and find all the Dragon Balls. I guess they have a dragon radar. I mean, yes. it seems like Bulma was the only one that had this technology originally, but somehow they've gotten a hold of it in this movie. Yeah, they do. They've got one built into the cockpit of their uh, airplane, and at one point, I know in the subtitled version, they actually explicitly call it a dragon radar. 
which feels, I don't want to say worthless, but it's not very portable. You know what I mean? Like, if you had to get down in the nitty-gritty of the jungle or something, it's not like Bulma's, which you can fit in your pocket. Yeah, that's true. So, but, hey, what are you going to do, right? Like, surely there's not a whole lot of Dragon Raiders out there. You would hope not. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, there's at least, there's one more than we ever thought there was at this time. Yeah, that's true. So this is where we catch up with Goku for the first time. We see Kid Goku. He's talking to Grandpa, a.k.a. the four-star ball, says he's going to go get some food. And this is where I was totally just jarred because I grew up with a very specific voice actor for Kid Goku and also Kid Gohan and Teen Gohan, and this is not that person. Uh, so the original, you know, Japanese voice of Goku is Masako Nozawa, and she does, you know, all of the Gokus of all time. Has always on, and only ever been Goku, really. This that we get in this particular dub is Colleen Clinkenbeard, who is the voice of Kid Goku and Young Gohan, Teen Gohan in the Kai dub, also in this movie. And you might also know her as Momo Yaoyorosu in My Hero Academia. What? Seriously? Yeah. So That's Colleen Clinkenbeard, cool. the, the voice of Kid Goku in this dub and in DBZ Kai, uh, voices Momo on My Hero. But the voice that I am used to is Stephanie Nadalny, who did uh, original uh, voice over work for Z and GT. Like, you know, when Goku gets de-aged in GT, that it's back to Nadalny. So that's the voice that I expected. And when I didn't get it, I was like, it's cringy. Not because it's bad. It's just different. It's not my Goku voice. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, that's like the best way to describe it. When you're used to hearing a voice actor or like a character be voiced by a particular person and then they're not, it just... It's like nails on chalkboard almost. It right. just catches you off guard so badly. Just like in Dragon Ball Z, and also in Dragon Ball, here, we get the first thing that we see Goku do is kill a fish. Um, I, there are some really interesting like parallelisms between the beginning of Dragon Ball, be it the anime itself or, the, or this movie, and also the beginning of Z. I'll point out another one in shortly. Uh, but he's dragging this fish back home. But Bulma, Pasta, and Bongo are all converging on that four-star ball using their various dragon radars. And Bulma, in route, runs over Goku with her bike, uh, hits him hard enough that he leaves this, you know, Looney Tunes indentation in a rock, a gag that I always <laughs> love. I love in Dragon Ball Z, especially when somebody gets hit into a rock and it turns into that, like, spherical, perfect spherical crater. Oh, I it's so that. cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this is totally like Wiley Coyote falling off of the cliff arms and legs in different positions indentation in the rock and goku's naivety is on full display immediately he sees the plane fly over and he's wondering what's up with that big bird and it's growling stomach and when bulma comes uh, crawling out of the motorcycle he's like it's a monster getting out of its shell he doesn't know what to do <laughs> yeah it's pretty funny because he immediately goes to attack and he actually ends up knocking a dragon ball out of her like purse or, or out of the bag or the carrier on the motorcycle, something along the lines of that. And he mistakes it for his four star. And he's like, Hey, you've got, you've got my grandpa's ball. And she's like, no, I don't. This is, this is clearly mine. Look at the red stars points out the difference. And she realizes that more than likely that airplane was probably headed towards the four star ball. And then we transition over and we see pasta and bongo. They're taking the ball and they're replacing it with what looks like a golden coin of some kind. They leave with the four-star ball, and Bulma gets a trusty capsule number five, is what I think she calls it. She pulls it out, and she jumps into this hydro jet. And so she takes off with Goku into the air. What is she, like 14, 15 in this movie? And yes. she's going after this military plane in her own small plane? It's crazy. Yeah, she's, she's always pretty bold. And uh, it's funny because, again, another comparison to Z, 
they should they tried to show you or to communicate by showing how strong somebody is by having them get shot. And so oh, yeah, Goku that's right. gets shot and he just brushes it off. Just like in Z, a farmer tries to shoot Raditz and he just catches the bullet like it's no big deal. We immediately you see that and they go, oh, this guy's, you know, real strong. <laughs> so that's the convention that they use again. Uh, and then again, Bulma's voice actor is a little different here for me. This is Monica Rial, who does Bulma and Kai and also Super. And I recognize her as the voice of Dragon Ball Super's Bulma. But I grew up listening to Tiffany Vollmer, who is very different Bulma. Um, in fact, because we talked about Goku and Bulma, we'll include in the show notes uh, the show notes to this podcast little voice actor comparison videos from YouTube that I found that were pretty great, where you can hear these things side by side and determine which one of them is your Goku and which one is your Bulma. You know, what's really interesting is that I think depending on the dub you listen to in uh, English, there are multiple Bulmas because they had this thing happen where they used like some of the episode material instead of just the movie material. So the original voice actress was let go basically at some point in time in the midst of the movie. And then they, they used footage from the TV show and mixed it in with the movie. So they've got two different Bulma act- voice actresses. So <laughs> I thought that was kind of interesting. That is strange. There's like certain scenes that depending on what scene they're in, I think one of them is whenever they're with Pansy in the cart or not the cart, but like the camper that we'll talk about later. Um, that's one of the scenes where they they use a different Bulma entirely. Hmm. I noted, too, that, uh, you know, that you ever heard that quote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Uh, yeah. Goku thinks that Bulma is like a wizard because of the hoi poi capsules <laughs> or the capsule corp. Uh, little yeah. capsules that she throws out. And I noted too that in the in the dub at least, it's 13 minutes and 23 seconds into this movie before we even hear Goku's name or Bulma's name. Although you can see Bulma's name on her shirt that entire time. Right. Yeah. They don't actually introduce each other until they're like starting to fly up to go after Pasta and Bongo. Right. Um, what you know what's crazy too is I feel like I've either seen a version or I'm remembering the manga or the anime because I've I've read, watched, seen a lot of this. Uh, where after she shoots Goku, she's like, oh, well, they are rubber bullets anyways. So there's like at least one time, unless I'm totally misremembering, where they kind of retcon it. So that way it's not like they're real bullets. She didn't really shoot them, but then gets in a plane and like starts to shoot down Pasta and Bongo. <laughs> yeah. And she yeah. So they, she flies off and it's great because she's trying to get them to land. And Goku is just proffering this coin. And he's just like, you left this at my house. He's so young and naive. And it's yeah. that that line made me laugh out loud, too. It's like, are you going to give it back to him? Yeah. But they, they go back and forth. Pasta tries shooting them down. I thought that she straight up just killed Bulma with the rocket launcher. Well, I was right? like, they're dead. She's dead. Um, <laughs> yeah, because their plane literally just blows up in the yeah. middle of the air. And then we get a really, really classic scene, which I think has been in every iteration of Dragon Ball ever where they're falling into this ravine and Goku saves her either by throwing his power pole, a power pole at her and it like gets stuck in through her clothing and then into the side of the ravine or she gets caught on a tree and Goku falls into the river and he's looking up and she's obviously peeing down onto him and he's like, hey, you didn't fall in. Why are you wet? Right. Of course, she's very (laughs) embarrassed. In the Japanese, she just straight up says, I'm peeing. (laughs) This is a scene that's been in every iteration of this, this intro to Dragon Ball, though. Yeah, they they get into a car from there and end up rolling up on a scene where we catch back up with Pansy, who has left the village, and she bumps into an Oni-slash-ogre-looking thing that, if you're familiar with the show, you know this to be Oolong, who has changed his shape. Uh, He's typically a little pig uh, who wears like a Korean War-era People's Liberation Army uniform-looking thing. 
Um, and he in the in the dub, he says, you look good enough to eat, which scares her. But in the original Japanese, he does the usual stick from the anime where he says, marry me or I will eat you just to kind of scare her into acquiescing to that command of his, I guess. Um, but Goku and Bulma show up and <laughs> Oolong transforms into this giant metal knight, sticks his finger inside of this steaming bowl of ramen, ends up hurting himself. And then this turns into this like who's really stronger goku's like you're not you look strong but you aren't really that strong and so oolong's like oh yeah well punch down this tree and we'll determine who really is strong and so in the uh in the dub goku says that his grandpa taught him karate so i put down in my notes that that's canonically goku's original martial art but in the japanese it's kung fu which made way more sense to me yeah no that does make more sense i feel like kung fu makes a lot more sense in fact but i mean goku takes the tree down regardless of what he's using <laughs> he like decimates it and oolong is like what the hell <laughs> i mean it's awesome and you know he keeps calling oolong a coward i'm pretty sure throughout the movie like he that's what he refers to him as you coward uh so oolong gets freaked out he transforms into a bat and he flies off of course goku chases because now he's like trying to figure out what is going on with this guy uh, and he pins the bat down via the power pole. Like he, I'm pretty sure he extends it and then catches the bat in the mouth. Like he went bat fishing. Of course, he turns into a pig, and it's Oolong. We're introduced to Oolong. Oolong, yep. And he he starts immediately freaking out. And at no time ever in the history of Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z, Dragon Ball GT, Dragon Ball Super has anyone been this afraid of Yamcha ever in, right. in history. It's never been done. But yeah. Oolong is losing his mind because he realizes that he's in Yamcha's territory and Puar ends up being there too. It actually he actually has a really cool introduction in this movie, I thought. Yeah, but it's kind of weird because he like drops out of nowhere with like an AK-47 and starts shooting everybody again. And no one ever gets shot in Dragon Ball. Like either they're resistant so they do get shot or there's a lot of gun firing but nobody gets hit with bullets it seems like. Oh yeah, and that's going to come up again like at the end of this movie where all of King Gurumez's soldiers are terrible shots until the one time that they aren't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just like terrible firing. They're all of these machines firing on one spot and they all manage to miss somehow. Yeah. Well, we find out that Poor and Oolong actually went to transformation school together. And it turns out the whole reason that Oolong got kicked out of transformation school was because he got caught stealing panties. So we have these two characters that I guess have a lot of background with each other, but we didn't know that until beforehand. And honestly, I don't know that it ever really comes back up because in the later movies, poor and Oolong aren't transforming anymore. Like they lose that after dragon ball. I'd never see them really do that in DBZ. It doesn't seem like, yeah, I don't recall that, but I do recall learning outside of dragon ball that they knew each other. They had a history. I I'm still haven't actually watched all of dragon ball. Oh my gosh. I feel like a terrible fan, but I came <laughs> into it late like really late. I'm in my 30s and it j just doesn't click for me in the way that Z or even GT did or Super does. So it's much slower for me to walk through. Yeah, Dragon Ball's tone is just so different. I mean, even rewatching this movie, I'm kind of reminded that it's Dragon Ball's a little bit more adult, which seems weird because it came before Dragon Ball Z, uh, but it's a little bit more perverse. Like there's just things that happen in it that I don't think ever happened in DBZ, at least not to the extent that they do in Dragon Ball. Yeah, um, but Oolong gets scared of Yamcha because Yamcha is pretty much standing them up and he challenges Yamcha via Goku. He's like, hey, look, you get in here and take care of this guy, which is funny because Goku's like, hey, why are you being a coward again? And, and Oolong says, I've literally been a coward this whole time. Like nothing's changed. This is just who I am. Uh, so we get this awesome fight between Goku and Yamcha. I mean, right off the bat, Goku's kind of kicking butt, but then Yamcha comes back with his wolf fang fist and does a killer move. 
so they go back and forth for probably a good like three minutes in movie time. It's probably less than 60 seconds in a real fight. Uh, but it's awesome because Goku gets him with this old classic rock, paper, scissors move where he like punches him and then like slaps him and then pokes his eyes out. <laughs> yeah, it's very stoogy. Yeah. Um, to kick off this fight too, um, Goku misnames Yamcha's lamb chop, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, this ticks Yamcha off, so he comes at him. Puar does some backseat fighting, tells him to use the wolf fang fist. He does. He gets rock, paper, scissored in return. And at the end, like in the original cut, apparently Yamcha looks at Goku after getting rock, paper, scissors and calls him a little shit. Um, but it's not in the dub or the sub in the movies that I have access to. Uh, well, Bulma drives up on the scene and this freaks Yamcha out like entirely. And he falls off the cliff that they were up on and loses a tooth. And then him and Poir leave. They flee. Uh, Bulma is like, oh, wow, he had some boyish charm. And that pretty much gets dropped immediately. <laughs> and so we transition <laughs> over to seeing Goku, Oolong, Bulma, and Pansy all in this like small RV. They're all camping out. And we get a little bit of backstory. It turns out that Pansy is heading to find Master Roshi because she believes that he will be able to come and save her village from this terrible king that has just decimated everything due to his insatiable hunger or you know, wanting to get all these blood rubies out and selling basically the village out to all of these, it seems like corporations of some kind, but we never really see who he's in cahoots with. So Bulma decides that since they're headed that way anyways, they might as well as go together. So they all decide to head down towards Kami House. Yeah, we also find out that Gurumez has been collecting the Dragon Balls, which catches Bulma's attention. He already has five, and uh, Pansy says that he's going to make a terrible wish. And I'm like, how do you know? I mean, like, if she knew what his wish actually was, would she have been like, yeah, that's fine. You can be not hungry. Would she have just let him make the wish? She, no, it makes it sound so. like she's like, he's going to kill us all with this wish. And I'm like, <laughs> he just wants to not have rumbly in his tumblies. Like, that's not that bad a thing. Yeah, but I feel like maybe they don't know how the dragon works. So even if she did know his wish, we don't know that the dragon would give the wish exactly the way that it's stated. You know, like there may be some caveats there. It's like monkey's paw, right? Yeah, that could be. Yamcha overhears all of this as well, and he concocts this plan to beat them to Master Roshi. I guess he already knows where he is or knows whereabouts he or is. Or has heard of him or something, yeah. Yeah, so he's going to go to Master Roshi, convince Roshi that Goku is coming to kill him, uh, and then he's Yamcha is going to go after the Dragon Balls to get his wish, which is that he would be cured of his shyness and awkwardness around women, which is why he clattered like a pair of like those toy wind up teeth off the cliff when Bulma showed up earlier. He doesn't have any interest in any kind of power, which Buhar is like, why don't you just become really strong or really rich? And he was like, well, I don't really want power and I can steal money. So I'd rather have I'd rather be married is basically where he ends yeah. up. It's kind of funny, though, because he, he devolves real quickly. He's like. I don't want to be shy around women. I want to fall in love. I want to get married. And then he finally is like, well, or at least go on a few dates. Like yeah. he, he starts off real high on that and slowly works his way down. Uh, but they take off down towards Kami's house to, I guess, cut off Goku and gang. Uh, and then we get this quick like interlude where King Gurumes is like, I only need two more Dragon Balls. <laughs> then it transitions right into Kami house. Okay, but I do love that scene because it shows that he's storing the Dragon Balls in his stomach. Right. And that reminded me in GT um, where Super Saiyan 4 Goku tries to swallow the one Dragon Ball and it like gets lodged in his throat. It's a really funny, silly scene. And Vegeta is looking at him like, you're an idiot and I hope you die. Like it'll be Darwinism <laughs> at work, kind of. Well, maybe this is why I think he ate some of the blood rubies because he's eaten the Dragon Balls. So it makes sense. Like if he'd eat one, <laughs> he'd eat the other, right? 
Maybe. I don't know. It looks like later on in the movie, spoiler alerts, um, he has an apple in his hand. And I don't think he could have got that down his normal sized gullet. So I don't de- he definitely couldn't have done Dragon Balls that way, but he might have been able to swallow a blood ruby that way. And he's lucky he's not on Namek. He'd have been screwed. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you that don't know, the Namek Dragon Balls are huge. Yeah. It sounds like... weird when you say that sentence. Yeah. But <laughs> the hey. Dragon Balls are huge <laughs> in Namek. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Well, down at Kami House, all of, I mean, we, we really don't waste any time here. Like, the next scene is just them arriving at the beach house. Uh, they pull up on this little island. So to describe to you, it's like out in the middle of the ocean, and there's like this little beach shack. It looks like a surfer would live there or something. Uh, and there's it's like- a pink two, house, and it literally just says Kame House on the side in English. Yeah, and there's like maybe two or three palm trees there, and there's often a turtle swimming around. Uh, but, named Turtle. Yeah, just named Turtle. Voiced by Christopher Sabat when he does speak who was also the voice of Yamcha. And I found out watching this movie, Shinron. I didn't know he was always been the voice of Shinron. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Um, so I know it was Yamcha that I didn't realize. I didn't realize that Sabat had did Yamcha for like ever. Because I mentioned to Adkins before we started, I was like, man, Yamcha's always sounded the same to me. Well, that's why. That would be why. <laughs> uh, but Pansy straight up just asks like, hey, you know, Master Roshi, we could use your help. And when he comes out of his house, he's immediately accusing them of trying to show up to kill him and steal his his shell and pansy's like no we just need your help like i could use your help taking back my village from this really evil king and master roshi's like did you hear that back there is this the yeah. truth and yeah, i'm just lurking behind the house yeah you know, i'm just back there all all getting messed up and and whenever uh palma realizes that he's hiding back there she like kind of gets up close to him and, and is all over him and of course Yamcha immediately just runs off. I mean, we see him and Poor like skipping across the the uh, ocean. It seems like, yeah, not quite yet, but he's he still kind of skedaddles behind the house because Roshi's like, well, there's a way to determine which one of you is lying to me. Oh, so he calls right. the Nimbus because yeah. he's and this is genius. This is a really interesting use of the uh, of the Nimbus is because he's going to use it like a lie detector because the Nimbus's rule is that whoever is um, not dishonest or wicked at heart or is pure of heart can ride this Nimbus. So he's going to basically throw or or ask them to jump up uh, Yamcha and Goku, presumably onto the Nimbus to determine who the liar is. But he goes to demonstrate it and he falls right through, which I wonder how long it's been since he tried to get on the Nimbus. He acts surprised that he falls through. So I actually did some research on this. Okay. I could not find any evidence on when he could last ride the Nimbus. But what I was able to find was that he was given the the Nimbus. And it was, in fact, when he was given the Nimbus, it was massive. Like, it was a lot bigger than the small cloud that we see in the normal renditions. Uh, But apparently he was given this after three years of training with Corrin, which I, I found a couple of different sources that say one way or another. But it should have been roughly 30 years before this movie or the beginning of Dragon Ball. So... Within the last 27 years, he's used it at least once. <laughs> okay. Well, he can't use it anymore, but Goku, and, and Goku does this act this same thing twice in this scene. He, he sees Roshi do something or, or attempt to do something, and then he just does it. So Goku jumps up on Nimbus, no problem, takes, takes to it, is able to stand on it, no issues whatsoever. And that's when Yamcho and Puar take off on like a little jet ski thing. They yeah. leave because they, they know they've been, they've been had at that point. And then we get another really classic scene, but it's also probably one of the pervious scenes in all of oh, Dragon yeah. Ball. Uh, Roshi has the three-star ball, and Bulma picks up on this, and she freaks out. And the moment she freaks out, Roshi realizes he's got something important. Otherwise, I don't know that he would have even have cared to give it over. He probably would have just done it. 
Oh no, uh, I still think he would have asked to see some boobies. You think so? Maybe, oh yeah, he maybe. he was in a position where he could make and ask uh, any kind of request that he wanted, regardless of the value of that necklace. He, he was probably going to at least take a shot. That's fair. Well, he asked Balma, as Adkins said, for a quick flash, and Balma's like, oh, fine, okay, I'll do it. She runs around the house, which doesn't seem suspicious at all, with a pig, uh, and gets <laughs> Oolong to transform into her. At first, he's a very, I'm going to use the word frumpy version of her, like very short and kind of rounder version. Uh, and she's like, all right, if you'll make it look real, you know, I'll, I'll trade you my panties. How's that sound? So she's got all these dirty deals going on. And, uh, of course he's nasty in it up. He's playing with her body. She gets mad. He goes and flashes, teases Roshi and is able to get the trade off. Um, and I, this is a part of my notes where I noted, like, I forget that Dragon Ball is a lot raunchier than DBZ. Like this kind of stuff isn't a common occurrence in DBZ. It doesn't seem like. Um, even there a little bit like I can recall a scene where Roshi like straight up full on fondles Android 18, like hands full of boobies at one point. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, it's definitely way more prominent in Dragon Ball. And we actually got a toned down version of it yeah. in the English dub, because in the English, he says, I want to peep at your supple boobies. But in the Japanese, he wants to poke them. I mean, he wants to actually touch them. Uh, and then it gets even crazier because Oolong is relishing this. He he is enjoying being Bulma. And so he doesn't just uh, go out and say, well, if you just want to see him, then that's fine. He's like, how about you go a little bit further? And he offers to allow Roshi to play a game called Bouncy Bouncy, uh, which is basically like he's like, I'll let you motorboat me, basically, is what he's <laughs> getting at in in the Japanese and in the English. Uh, but yeah, it is it is pretty raunchy um, and nothing is shown. But I do have this question and this is a terrible question for me to ask, but I'm going to ask it. How, does does Oolong, how does he know what Bulma looks like with her shirt up or is Roshi being duped by seeing Oolong's, Oolong's nipples, say, when he pulls his uh, his shirt up? That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know how that magic works, and I don't know that it's ever explained. Although it would have been funny if he was like completely blank, like not blank, but I'm trying to think of the right word, like featureless. <laughs> Anywhere there's clothing. I think Roshi would have reacted to that. I think Roshi Maybe. definitely saw nipple. I just don't know if it's a facsimile of Bulma's or if it is just Oolong's and Roshi has no clue <laughs> that he's looking at pig nips instead of Bulma's. <laughs> I don't know that Roshi would care. I think he might. Like, if we were to spoil that for him, I feel like he might, but he definitely has no idea, regardless, here yeah, in the scene. Yeah. Well, in the midst of all of this, they are attacked. The King's Army has shown up. They are ready to steal that three-star ball as well. And they just mow down the house. Like, I mean, straight up, there's basically no house left after they're done. And then when they realize that the folks are still alive on the island, Bongo's like, all right, nuke it. So, yeah, that's a crazy line. Also, only in the dub. He doesn't say anything remotely close to that in the Japanese. Really? Okay. Yeah, that, that actually kind of makes sense, I guess. They managed, one of the missiles that they shot was like this little drone looking thing that snatches the three star. Um, but Ulan blocks the second one as it goes to catch what the second or the two star one, I assume, uh, because that was the other one that we knew Bulma was in possession of. Mm -hmm. uh, so they got the three star. So now they have six for sure. And that's where they were like, we'll just kill them and we'll go claim the, the seventh one from their dead bodies. And so they launch out, uh, they launch a much larger scale attack. And this is where Master Roshi shows off. Uh, this is the first time we get to see Master Roshi like in his prime, because up to this point, he's kind of like this, this really thin, feeble looking old man that's got this massive shell on his back. But he takes his shell off, he rips his shirt off and he buffs up I mean, he gets, he gets huge. 
And we get to see our first Kamehameha wave where he just absolutely decimates the army. I mean, like, they're all dead, I would guess. And I have no idea how Pasta and Bongo get out. There is a quick scene where, the, like, an ejection ship or pod is shown with the two of them hauling oh, away yeah. from that explosion. Yeah. I don't know how they had the time to get from cockpit to that thing and evacuate, but they there is a visual that shows them getting away. Did you notice, too, that when Roshi t- took his shirt off that he had a bunch of strange markings on his back? They look like bandages, like Icy Hots. Well, yeah, that is kind of what they are. So there's two rectangle ones up towards his shoulders that are basically um, it, it's a visual gag for Japanese folks, because apparently older folks in Japan will wear these patches for prolonged periods of time. That's why they have different colored skin when they're <laughs> not there. Um, and they are like icy, icy hot patches. But he also had six dots down towards the bottom of his back, like near his uh, pant line that look kind of like the dots on Krillin's forehead. And best I could tell from Googling stuff on the Internet, um, people suggested that that might be marks of what's called moxibustion and it just says practitioners use moxa to warm regions and meridian points with the intention of stimulating circulation through the points and inducing a smoother flow of blood and key and Mm. key is definitely a very dragon ball thing oh that's really cool i actually didn't catch on to that uh but i can i think i can see in my head what you're talking about uh because i do kind of remember something like that being there uh, but once again, like you mentioned earlier, immediately after seeing this, Goku's like, hey, you got to teach me that. I want to know how to do this. Master Roshi's like, well, it's going to take 50 years of training. You're, you can't just do this whimsy all over the place or whatever. And, and so Pansy comes in and she starts asking for help. She's like, Master Roshi, you really have got to help us. Like, you've got to come and take back our village. And as she's talking to him for help, Goku's in the background trying his first Kamehameha wave pulls it off, destroys a rock, and Master Roshi is just like, 50 years, give or take? <laughs> <laughs> right. He's Goku's like bouncing on his, pale, uh, his tail like it's a pogo stick, and Oolong's eyes in this scene are massive. Oh, it's massive. so funny. Yeah, he's They're like... They're really, really funny. Uh, there's a part of me that feels bad for Oolong to some extent because he doesn't really fit in with the rest of the group. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't really bring a whole lot extra to the table other than the fact that he can transform, I guess. But even then, like, he's just hoping to get another wish off. But in this moment, I think he realizes, like, what the hell have I got myself into? <laughs> yeah, that's like, true. I didn't since think finding about that. these people, I've been attacked by Yamcha. I've been attacked by an army. And now there's this monkey kid that can just shoot key out of his hands. Like, what is going on? I need to check and see. I don't think that it's true, but I wouldn't be surprised to find out that his eyes were that large starting like immediately after Roshi launches his Kamehameha and his eyes just don't shrink <laughs> back down to normal size for a little while afterwards. Yeah, I could see that. They end up flying back towards Pansy's hometown without Master Roshi because Roshi's just like, you know what, the little Goku kid, he's powerful beyond measure, which I thought was an ironic line because of power levels is a big thing in Dragon Ball for a while, um, which is a measurement of power. Uh, Bulma says, don't worry, you know, we're a team. We'll stop that king. And Oolong gets onto her case a little bit. And he's just like, we're a team until you get the chance to make your wish. And he realizes he doesn't know where her wish is. And so he asks her and Bulma says that it's just to get a boyfriend. And then she starts ragging Oolong about what his wish might be. Uh, because she just suspects that it's going to be panties, of course. And he's like, okay, but not just any panties, Egyptian cotton panties. So Oolong has standards and standards should almost always be appreciated. <laughs> even he's a man case. of specific tastes. Yeah, even in this case. Uh, we transition over to see King Gurumez sitting there. He is waiting to hear from Pasta and Bongo. And they walk in and they let him know, like, hey, look, the final Dragon Ball is on its way. We didn't even have to go get the last one. But, like, it's coming to us. 
And uh, so he starts getting excited, and then we see the copter coming into the village, and Pasta demands that the aircraft be destroyed, and they'll just recover the Dragon Ball from the dead bodies again. They're like, all right, we'll just wait for them, blow everybody up, we'll go find that Dragon Ball. And so they begin firing on Goku and gang. They're getting all lit up, and Goku ends up fighting. No, no, they are not. They are They are. Well, they're, I say not. they're getting all lit up. It, bullets are going all around them, but they're just not hitting anything. It's amazing the inaccuracy of these these henchmen. In fact, Bulma flies around for a solid five minutes, I would say, before even taking any damage. And she's going up against this King's Air Force, effectively. It's one on, like, 20. So while Bulma is evading the entire Air Force of this village, Goku is fighting Bongo, who is basically on a flying Roomba. I, I mean, oh, it's, yes, I <laughs> he's called it like, the dope disc. He's zooming all over the castle. It's or around the castle. It's pretty intense little fl- fight, actually. I would take the dope disc over the Nimbus any day, it's, every time. You think so? Really? Yes. It looks so cool. No, I thought it looked so dumb. <laughs> I thought it <laughs> you looked and so I are, silly. This is this is our civil war line right it here. It looked like Frankenstein riding a Roomba in the air. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. I loved it. I was like, I want one. <laughs> I'd rather take a Nimbus any day. That looks so much cooler. They do finally manage to shoot. The The henchmen do, while uh, Bongo jumps on that disc, goes after Goku, the henchmen do manage to shoot Bulma and crew out of the sky. They flat splash into the water. Um, and then this is where we cut back to Bongo, and he is doing the first appearance in all of Dragon Ball canon that I'm aware of, of dragging somebody's face through, like, stone, which I remember distinctly seeing in, like, Broly, the first Broly movie, which we'll get to in, like, a year, <laughs> maybe yeah, longer than yeah. that. Or maybe even, like, the Frieza storyline in the actual show. Yeah, that could be where he's just dragging Goku's face violently through stone. Um, and then Goku ends up uh, freeing himself, ducks under the dope disc, breaks it in half. Bongo presses this button while he's falling and launches one end of his little like double ended mace, wraps up Goku and they fall down into the uh, into the castle, which is conveniently kind of corralling everybody into the throne room. But we're not quite there yet because we catch up with Yamcha who arrives on scene. Yeah, so Yamcha comes flying in, like, out of nowhere. He rolls right into combat. He's taking out the King's Army left and right with these nunchucks, which seems weird. I don't remember Yamcha ever using nunchucks. And, and well, I, I couldn't even tell if they were nunchucks, because there were times where they looked like nunchucks, but there were also times where it looked like a three-section staff, where they were, like, yeah. two lengths of chain and three bits of wood. Which is a type of nunchuck, I'm pretty sure. I've seen that before, but it, it, there was no consistency. It was like, occasionally they looked like nunchucks, and then occasionally they looked like that three-tiered system that you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, but they stumble across like this huge vat of blood rubies, so they're just stocking up on blood rubies. He's like, grab as many as you freaking can. So, he wants to blood rubies and bounce. Yeah, he wants to get as much as he can and get out. I mean, he realizes it's his time. Like he's got, He can get all of this money. Why bother with this whole fight? Uh, so we we see this transition to Oolong, uh, who is turned into this monster. He's scaring off shol- soldiers, and uh, Bulma and crew are right behind him. And they turn this corner and run into what they think is another group of soldiers at first, but it's another monster, and it's actually Poir and Yamcha. So they both freak <laughs> right. each other out and like scare each other back to normal. So now they're both just Poir and Oolong in their normal forms. And, uh, I mean, it's just funny. That's a good, good little scene. I asked in my notes if there was any kind of Pokemon where the same type was super effective against itself, because that's what seemed to have happened between these two shapeshifters in the hallway, is they were the same typed creatures, they did their super moves, and it like KO'd both of them, kind of. Not to (laughs) nerd out, but totally like dragons, I'm pretty sure dragon versus dragon, they're weak against each other, fairies might be that way too. 
I don't know enough Pokemon, so I'm glad that you know something. Yeah, I feel like blanks. fighting might be that way. There's a few there. I've been playing Shield again, so. Oh, nice. Well, then Pasta comes around the corner and definitely just kills Yamcha is what I had in my notes. Yeah. But he, I mean, he, he gets shot dozens of times in the chest by her gun. But uh, because he had packed all the blood rupees down in there, they act as this bulletproof vest for him functionally. Um, so she kind of walks past him, assuming he's dead. But he sweeps her leg, jumps up, and then in the process of assaulting her, he assaults her. Yeah. <laughs> like gets a handful <laughs> of boob. Um, which basically turns him into a plank because he still is not good with women. And she starts pulling out German like stick grenades and you, you just chunking them at Bulma uh, and co. And so they start running in the opposite direction. And then uh, there's this funny scene where Yamcha keeps a rock from falling onto Bulma. Uh, and in thanks, she kind of gives him this cuddle. And I just have in my notes, I said, I'm pretty sure he has premature ejaculation when she thanks him with that cuddle. <laughs> because it's not just like this visual gag where his face gets red. It's like the scene goes black and he's like yelling in this very like suggestive way. I was like, he might need a change of pants after this. Yeah, these movies are very suggestive. The Dragon Ball stuff in general is like sometimes it's very suggestive. And then other times it just shows you what happens. And you're like, oh, OK, that. That took place. I can't get, get like, I can't imagine some of the stuff they got away with, with some of the older series like this, you know? Goku is continuing to fight off Bongo, and he actually ends up using his power pole to extend sending Bongo through the second floor, crashing into Pamsey, Bulma, and the rest of the company, Yamcha, Poir, Oolong, right into the King's Lair. So now they're, like, all center stage. We've got all the big players right here in the middle of the room. Uh, and... Poor Garumez. I mean, he's practically exploding from like expanding and creaking like out into this bigger format as he is slowly like walking towards them. And he I I said he evolves. I don't really know transforms into this bigger beast. So like he's gotten even bigger of a monster uh, and he even just steps on Bongo and literally like flattens him out. More Looney Tunes gags. Yeah, he just flattens Bongo out. Pasta, in all of her empathy, comes up uh, and says that he would make a nice doormat while he's all flattened out. <laughs> right. So Goku goes to attack the king, but he's pretty much immediately stopped. Like, it seems like as he's going to punch the king, the king just is able to grab on, or not really grab on, but absorb the punch with his own fist. So Goku does what Goku just learned, and he does a Kamehameha wave to attack the king, but it almost seems like he just absorbs it. And then out of nowhere, Bulma is like, oh, wow, what is this on the dragon radar? All of the dragon balls are moving at once as he's moving? Oh, so he's eaten the dragon balls. So she throws the seventh ball into his mouth and then just summons the dragon. And yeah, basically and this, his, ends the in fight. In her defense, his stomach was like glowing too. Yeah. Like that was, a, there was a visual cue. Totally. But I mean, it totally ruins the fight. Like we don't, we get all of like maybe 30 seconds of seeing Goku and the king fight. And Shinron pretty much just, destroys the king i mean it seems like no, anyways i mean he this lives is the wildest but... thing okay so i have i have time stamps in my notes because you're right this it doesn't go for 30 seconds it goes for a minute and 20 um from the moment that uh Gurumez transforms and steps on bongo to the point where shenron is called forth a minute and 20 seconds during those um 80 seconds exactly two punches and one kamehameha are thrown that's it that's the entirety of this fight then Shinron, uh, Shinron gets summoned. He erupts out of Gurumez's mouth, destroys most of the castle, sends everybody scattering. But Gurumez is totally fine at the end of this movie. So yeah. I don't, uh, it's like, it's a weird Dragon Ball movie in that the bad guy doesn't end up like severely crippled or dead 
or you know, he's just like he's fine. Well, and I have a theory about why he's okay. Why is that? Well, so let's continue. So whenever the dragon is summoned, he immediately is just like, "Who summoned me? Make a wish. I'm ready to go back to the core of the earth." He likes to be he's a homebody. He doesn't want to be summoned. So all of these people are about to make their wish. Yamcha and Bulma are like trying to speak it out and Pansy's overlooking her village and she sees everything that's just been so destroyed and she turns around and interrupts them and is like, wait, hold on, let me make the wish. And she wishes for her land to be beautiful and peaceful again. The Shinron says, so be it. And then all of a sudden, like all the blood rubies are just siphoned out of the ground. Like, I don't know, whenever she makes the wish in my mind, I feel like we should either see like not time reverse, but like things go back to the way they were. But instead, just all the blood rubies get sucked up out of the ground and go somewhere, and things are quote-unquote better. There is a scene, there is some depiction of it getting greener, but at the same time, it's getting green, but all of the holes where the rupees came up out of are still there, like little mole mounds. Yeah. So it's just like he Swiss cheesed the, the ground. It's not shown that later, but in that progressive scene, it is it is shown that way. It's weird. Well, I could see how Shinron interpreted her wish as turn things back to the way they were, and she mentioned earlier in the movie that before the king had found the blood rubies, that he was a decent king for the most part. So it makes sense that maybe part of the wish was the king being returned back to his old self. Yeah, that makes sense. Of course, uh, afterwards, we see that the king, while he has been turned back to his old self, he is still very, very hungry. And Pansy shares an apple with him, and he's like, oh my god, this is the best thing ever. And Pansy's dad comes out of nowhere, like, where the heck has he been throughout all of this? And he's just like, yeah, well, you know what? You almost screwed up apples for everybody, you SOB. <laughs> <laughs> and the king's like, oh, I feel bad. Uh, so Goku finally gets to return Pasta's coin, and then he's like, oh, well, the Dragon Balls, they're scattered again. I guess I got to go find Grandpa. And he calls yep. the Flying Nimbus and rides off. <laughs> and then the movie just ends. Like, Bulma and Yamcha are dancing, and Oolong is like, I hate happy endings. So he's breaking the fourth wall. The village is all happy, and then roll credits. Like, it's just such an abrupt ending. Like, this movie just feels weird to me sometimes because it, it just feels too cut and dry. You know what I mean? Like, there's no meat to this movie sometimes, it feels like. Yeah, it's very, very fast. And again, it covers roughly the equivalent of the first dozen episodes of the anime. So you're talking about, you know, squeezing, you know, a couple hundred minutes into the span of 50 um, and it, they kind of parade all of these characters one at a time in very quick succession in front of you. This one, this one, this one, this one, this one. Um, and some of these characters you're never, ever going to see again in anything Dragon Ball related. Uh, and, and so it is it was very fast. Oh, some of the movies later on go, obviously, for longer run times. Um, I haven't looked ahead to see if 50 minutes is the norm for the first, you know, for the first three for the Dragon Ball films and if they start branching out from there. Uh, but very, very quick movie, easy to watch. I think I watched it six times total, um, just getting ready to do different calculations, make sure I watched the subtitled version and all that stuff. Yeah, I watched it a total of four times. I just I had it on in the background for the first time, and then I actually sat down, took notes, maybe twice. I like to refine them a little bit. I wanted to be able to talk about this movie pretty well. And then I did a decent amount of research, too, just to try to find cool facts about it. Uh, so, you know, one thing I didn't mention, whenever Shinron is summoned, the sky like turns black and there's this kind of like ordeal about it. And in terms of the original release, this was actually the first time that the dragon had been summoned. So whenever they did this like show off with him going into the sky and the sky turning black and everything, that wasn't necessarily like part of Akira Toriyama's plan. And it's not really well known whether or not 
he adapted that from the movie or if that was his plan all along. Because shortly afterwards, like I think it was like two months later after the movie had released was when they did this in the anime. So it's kind of interesting. Let's jump into a couple of our own segments. These will be stalwarts, uh, regular occurrences at the end of each of our coverages of these movies. And the first one that I want to introduce is Holler Minutes. And I covered this briefly in the promo. It's just this idea that Dragon Ball Z is known as the anime where people holler a bunch. And so I'm basically sitting there watching the movie. One of my watch throughs is just to try to calculate holler minutes. I try to keep it not so just that anytime somebody is shouting for some reason it would count, but that it has to be during combat from combatants. um, And it has to be some sort of extended exertion. Pain doesn't really count in my tracking, but it can be names because like eventually all Broly does is yell Kakarot. That's going to count as holler minutes. Um, (laughs) Okay. So, and I, I, come up with a number and it's going to be I'm sure if I tried to calculate it again it would be slightly different but pretty close I feel that this movie has 1.15 total holler minutes um, which isn't a ton um, but we will get there eventually so that's a minute and 15 seconds in a roughly 50 minute movie of people just hollering yep that's not bad just just shouting really I mean too bad that's not bad at all uh very cool well, let's get into the Raditz scale. So something that we have talked about doing and, and are going to do for each movie is compare the main villain to Raditz, who is the main villain of the first story arc in Dragon Ball Z. Now, Raditz is really easy to compare the people to because he was killed off fairly early on and his power level never really changes. Like when he arrives on Earth, I think he's roughly 1500. So Correct. we can determine how many of Raditz <laughs> King Grumes would be. And I figured we would do the king in this one. I, I wanted to kind of compare the military, but how do you compare the military to like one person? I mean, you know, each of these individual humans are probably ranking at like a one or two power level, considering I think Goku is any, ranked anywhere between 10 and 20 in this movie. And then like roughly 50-ish, 55-ish when he does the Kamehameha wave. So there's a whole army that equals one Raditz, but I think we all know Raditz could probably take out that army. As far as King Grumez goes, though, he's probably about 18 Raditz. So I'm curious, do you think 18 King Grumez could take down Raditz, or do you think that would be, like, easy game for, for Raditz? Yeah, I don't know. His power level was hard to pin down. I found it several places, somewhere between 60 and as high as 85. Mm-hmm. Um so that equals 0.05 Raditz or Radi, Raditzes, whatever, whatever uh, the, the correct terminology is there. So, but I don't know, even if you had 20 Gurumezes, um, he didn't, we didn't see a lot, much of what he was capable of. We saw him throw a couple punches, and we know Raditz is capable of significantly more than that. Um, so I would still think that Raditz could take uh, 20 King Gurumezes even. I'm going to say Raditz could probably take 30 or 40. I mean, Raditz has, he, he's a, a trained military individual. You know what I mean? Like he is not, yeah. he's not just anybody. He's not just some King that got fat and lazy and wants to eat. Like he's trained. I think he could take on way more than that. So, but that's just my two cents. So in terms of uh, like a trivia, like facts about this movie, we've kind of hit a couple things throughout the show, throughout the, uh, the actual uh, like podcast itself. But one or two things that I had left that I thought were kind of interesting. You know, I mentioned that this movie was dubbed a whole bunch. I, I counted seven different times that they dubbed it. And it seemed kind of strange to me. They dubbed it for very specific things. Like at one point in time, uh, there was this company named uh, Frontier Enterprises who recorded an English dub around 1987 for use as an in-flight movie on Japan Airlines, but then no footage of this dub has been seen since. Like, they have no idea what happened to it. They don't even know if any 
believe it exists anywhere at all. And the only record of it is actually a mention on a voice actor's resume that had done the uh, one of the voiceovers for one of the characters, which I thought was wild. Like someone spent the time and effort and money to record this whole movie and then lost all of that footage. That is that does seem pretty wild, but we also may think that it's more wild now because we live in the age where information cannot die or disappear. That's true. I think something similar kind of happened to uh, the original Toy Story movie, actually, where one of their on-site like databases completely, or not databases, but hard drives, effectively completely crashed. And the only reason they were able to recover the movie was because there was an employee that had been taking home the movie to work on it at, at her house which she wasn't supposed to be doing. So nobody knew about it until she came in the next day and they were like, well, the movie's done. Like we lost all the footage. And she was like, oh no, I've got some. So who knows? Maybe that, that movie is sitting in that actor's basement. They just haven't said anything about it. That's strange. Yeah, wild. Yeah. I had uh, the note that we're actually going to end up watching this movie twice over the course of Kyo Cinema because it is used as the basis for the Chinese live action Dragon Ball movie called The Magic Begins, which oh, we will wow. get to many 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 months from now it is not i think it might be inside of the first 10 or 12 movies but it's going to be a bit i'm excited for the live action ones those are going to be goofy um, oh yeah definitely so the last little bit of like fun facts that i had is is kind of a loose one but i hadn't heard of this character so i thought it was kind of neat apparently in one of the newer games dragon ball fighter z there's an antagonist named android 21 uh, who is similar to King Guramez in the sense that at one point in time, she was originally a human earthling, and she has been transformed into this android and now has this insatiable hunger, kind of similar to King Guramez, but there's no real relation. So, I don't know. It's kind of a stretch, but I did think that was interesting. I had not heard of Android 21. Well, I had seen that um, Dragon Ball Z Dock and Battle, which I played for years but had to walk away from um, because it's a very big gotcha, pay-to-win kind of styled game. But Guramez, Pasta, and Bongo are all playable inside <laughs> of that uh, that particular mobile game. So if you're playing Dock and Battle and you have those three, that's pretty cool. This is where they came from. This is the only place that they exist as far as I know. That is cool. I also noticed that on IMDb, this movie has a 6.9 out of 10. What? But we here at Kyo Cinema are going to rate on a 7-star rating. So, Adam, I put it to you first. How many stars would you give curse of the blood rubies oh, this is kind of a hard question because i don't want to diss the first movie but it's not my favorite i mean i give it maybe like three stars it does an okay job of introducing all the characters but it's real fast paced and if you're watching this for the first time i feel like they're going to kind of get lost in maybe the like fast pace of the movie uh, but on top of that, there just seems to be a lot of random little things like the king at the end living and not having just been absolutely wrecked by the dragon. And did we really resolve the situation? I don't know. Does the village just go back to normal or are all these army members now wanting to figure out like what where are my blood rubies at? What's going on with production? You know, who knows? There's there's all kinds of things that just I don't know. This movie doesn't have a lot of meat to it either. It just feels it feels like uh, like all your appetizers on a dish, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I I wish I could give it point, you know, uh, like if we could award point five, because I would, you know, three feels a little low, but I don't think it's, you know, above average. I mean, it, it just is average. It's yeah. a retelling of the first arc of Dragon Ball. It it does it in a way that it's different enough that it warrants a watch, but it, it's not so good that I would be like, yeah, you definitely need to go out of your way to see this, even if you've seen Dragon Ball. Um, but it doesn't do anything terrible. It just does things too quickly, I think, is the biggest strike I would put against For it. Sure. The fights are relatively short. 
because we're just in this movie introduced to, you know, key attacks, then we only see, you know, two or three during the course of the entire movie. And some of that, um, some of that creativity around those attacks is a big appeal for, for me as a Dragon Ball fan, seeing the stuff that isn't just, I punch you and I kick you. Um, but it, it's, it really isn't bad. It really isn't. It's worth a watch, but it's don't, you know, don't go out of your way to watch it, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, if you're if you've got time and you want to enjoy a fun Dragon Ball movie and you don't know anything about it, like maybe you grew up watching Dragon Ball Z and you don't want to watch 13 seasons of Dragon Ball, check out these first three movies. At least check out this one. Uh, it's worth a watch, you know, especially if you just want to see where some of these original characters came from. Like in DBZ, Poir and Oolong and even Yamcha to some extent are just really side characters. Um, so it's kind of neat to see them in their shining glory, I guess you could say. It's true. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's just a fast-tracked version of the first 12 eps. I probably would rather watch those 12 episodes than this again, but that's just me. Absolutely. I totally see where you're coming from. Well, let's see. What is next up on the list? I believe it is named Dragon Ball, Sleeping Princess, and Devil's Castle. Uh, this one came out a year later in July 1987. Uh, so... Let's uh, let's check that out in two weeks. What do you say, man? Sounds good to me. All right, so everybody go check out Sleeping Princess in Devil's Castle. Watch it. Check out the AMP feed in two weeks because that's where this episode will be. And then if you're one of our patrons, it'll be through your normal feed that you get through Patreon. And don't forget that if you're not a patron, in order to get past episode three, you got to check us out on patreon.com slash Network. But otherwise, this has been Kyle Cinema. I'm Adam. I'm Atkins. And we'll see you in two weeks.